Hello, everyone. This is your brief reminder that this conversation was recorded a couple of years ago, and this is a re-upload as we're trying to completely rebuild our show and our audience from scratch. Go back and listen to episode one for the full story on all of that. But of course, we appreciate your listening and any help in spreading the word and, and getting us back to square one where we already were. That We have recorded many more episodes after this one. They're all available on our Patreon at patreon.com slash ffweekly up through the end of Final Fantasy VII. We'll also be posting a new one on this timeline, if you will, every single day until we get caught back up. Also, if you're interested in more video game conversation or MCU or DC or professional wrestling or pro sports, please check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash DC Productions as I'm trying to make that an independent venture that works, which will also give me more time to work on Final Fantasy stuff. And one last thing, this is a big spoiler warning. We don't ruin the ends of any games here, but there are a couple of twists that we talk about in 6, 7, and 8 in particular. They're middle of the story twists. Nothing huge, but if you're one of those people that really doesn't want to know anything about those games and you haven't played any of those, you might want to skip over this one. Like I said, they're not in my mind massive spoilers, but uh, and we go through them pretty quickly and, and kind of without warning in the middle. So I just wanted to give you that. Other than that, here's our episode on the plot of Final Fantasy III. Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Kreisman. And I'm Ira Kreisman. And on this episode, we'll be discussing the plot, themes, and characters of Final Fantasy III. First released in Japan in 1990, would not come out in the United States in any official capacity until it was completely redone, which is the only game in the franchise of which that is true. In 2006, it was remade in full 3D for the Nintendo DS, and since then, it has, like the other early games in the franchise, been ported to just about every system that there is. So that's pretty cool that there are multiple versions of it, but also makes this conversation a little bit disjointed because we're mostly going to be talking about the 3D version of it that came out on the Nintendo DS because that's the one that we played. <laughs> the game was directed, as per usual, by Hironobu Sakaguchi, who also is credited as a writer, but not the main one. We'll get to that in a minute. Of course, the composer was Nobu Uematsu. The art was done by Yoshitaka Amano. But the game was also produced by Masafumi Miyamoto, who was, at the time, the president of Square and was somebody who would go on to be a key player in the merger to Square Enix. Essentially, he was the deciding vote. So he is the guy for all of the people who are mad at the direction the company has gone with expanded universes and all of the things that have gone on since they merged with Enix. He's the guy that you can direct your ire at. And for those of you who love the direction that the series has gone, he's someone you can get a, a lot of credit to. Um, so blame him for fun. Exactly. Blame okay. him for the fun. Noted. Uh, the other guy, the guy who is actually credited as being the main writer of the game, is Kenji Tarada, who is also credited as a writer on the first two games, and we have not brought up his name. He was a scenario writer on those, but he was the lead writer for Final Fantasy III. He has an interesting resume. He also wrote a popular Sega CD game that I've never heard of, but apparently it's very popular in Japan, called Dark Wizard. He was an executive producer on Final Fantasy VII. He 
He was the writer and director of the game Batman Dark Tomorrow, and he's also done a number of anime, including adaptations of Firestorm, which is pretty cool, and Outlanders. Huh. Nice. So yeah, an interesting guy. Also interesting is that he would go on and do all of those other things. Final Fantasy III would be his last credit in the Final Fantasy franchise. Other than, as I just said, an executive producer on Seven. So let's get into this somewhat, as I said, disjointed experience. I, I feel a little bit bad for Mr. Terada as the writer of this thing because there may not be any definitive version of Final Fantasy III. As we talked about, there was the original Nintendo Entertainment System version that came out in Japan in 1990 that very few people got to play and then it's been ported all of these different times we are going to be talking about the ds version but because of that we can't be and and this is kind of just a reminder as a caveat throughout this entire podcast it's not our intention to be encyclopedic when it comes to these games and there are probably going to be some things that we missed and if you've only played the 2d version and have never played the 3d version you might get you know a completely different sense of this game hopefully though since our goal is to talk about it more as a piece of literature and as a piece of art and its philosophies and its themes that all of that should resonate regardless of the version of the game that you played right and if you are interested in an encyclopedic version the final fantasy wiki exists and it is great and if you really want a recap of all the Final Fantasy games, the Final Fantasy Retrospective exists, and it is great. We're, we're trying to approach this much more from an analysis of, of big ideas and granular ideas throughout this series. So we're trying to uh, analyze through a variety of lenses. Right. And one last note on the different versions. I want to give a thanks and a shout out to the handle Master KD, who put up on YouTube his playthrough on Steam of the game, which I watched to refresh me because it's been since 2006 that I played this game. So I went through those videos to remind me of everything that happens in that and there may be some things that are specific to the steam version of the game that weren't in others that are going to seem because they're going to be fresher to me and that's just the nature of this conversation kind of one of the interesting right. things about this game uh, as a piece of artwork very interesting and it's uh, it's a good thing one of us decided to refresh themselves before doing this episode because <laughs> the other one not so much my experience with this game is uh, as i did with final fantasy too. I got an emulator version of it, or excuse me, I got a ROM version of it in college and, and played it on that with its... Certainly the translation wasn't bad. I knew what was going on, but it was a bit rough in spots. And then I played the DS version, and I only ever played it once. So I've got a lot less experience with this game than with other Final Fantasies. So I think with that in mind, what we'll do is go through a lot of the bigger plot points, but mostly try to focus on what it is this game is really at its core about, what kind of role it plays as an entry in the Final Fantasy series, some of the themes that would be seen later on, all that kind of good stuff. So with all of that said, we should jump right into it because it begins with some heavy philosophy and a lot of stuff that you would come to see play a role throughout the series and in plenty of other fantasy writing and television shows and films and all of that. So it, it actually begins with a quote from a disembodied voice. It is in quotes. Again, in the version that I've just most recently watched. And it writes, 
the Golgan thus prophesied. And I immediately, of course, thought of Mount Golg in Final Fantasy One. Sure. Not to mention prophecies from Final Fantasy One. Indeed. And then it goes on to say, the, and this is the prophecy, the earthquake was only the beginning. The great tremors that swallowed the crystals, the light of our world, only to spawn monsters from the depths of the scarred land, are nothing but harbingers of what has yet to come. Something is coming, fathomless, ominous, and full of sorrow. But hope is not yet lost. Four souls will be blessed with light, and so it shall begin. There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, before we even get into this, I wanted to mention in particular, now again, I don't know if this was something that they went back and, and put in. You mentioned some of the translations in the early ones. We don't know what this quote was like in the original game. But one of the big critiques, like with Final Fantasy I of this game that I've seen, is that the Cloud of Darkness character kind of comes out of nowhere, like Necron in 9 or like the 2,000-year time loop in 1. But right here in this quote, at least, it says something is coming, fathomless, ominous, and full of sorrow. That sounds a lot like a cloud of darkness to me. Yeah, like we talked about in the first game, they kind of tell you what the end is going to be right at the beginning. But of course, because it is foreshadowing, you're not meant to get it the first time through. So in the same way that the Temple of the Fiends or the Chaos Shrine is the first dungeon you go to in the first game, and that sort of sets up at the end, spoiler alert, Garland is chaos. In this one, yeah, the, the prophecy tells us the cloud of darkness is coming, but they don't expect you to understand that that's what they're saying because it is foreshadowing. Right. Also, the phrase scarred land, uh, I think, harkens back to the rotting earth and the raging seas and the still sure. winds of the first game, the scarred right. land. And you've also got, of course, four souls to be blessed with light. We're, we're getting to know our warriors of light here. But even the phrase, and so it shall begin, because the first game has the phrase, a journey begins. Right, in it. right, right. It's also worth noting, just from a language point of view, that they are not the warriors of light, but rather the warriors of the light. Right. <laughs> Do you think that little yeah. article is significant? I think it's an interesting take on it, and I think it may have to do, and we're jumping way ahead here, again, spoilers, but if you're listening to this, we're going to get there, that, that uh, they have warriors of the dark. Right. Yeah. And I think that that kind of lessens that what is going to be a central theme in this game is that, and, and in Final Fantasy, that dark and light are not necessarily stand-ins for good and evil. Right. Which we talked about in Final Fantasy too. Also, right. especially with the uh, you know the light emperor and the dark emperor, he's not a good dude in either version. Right. Then I find what's really interesting about the end of this like opening set of words here is that there's a little bit more of quotes, but then the quotes end, and text appears on the screen that says, "You must drive the darkness from this world and restore light to its rightful place. You are our last hope." Of course. Like any good nerd, I had two thoughts. One, <laughs> help uh -huh. me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, of course, Right. Uh, with You Are Our Last Hope. But as we talked about with the first game, and you mentioned the Final Fantasy franchise talking directly to the player and your role, you. So outside of quotes, the game is now addressing the player. You must drive the darkness from this world. 
and it reminded me of Final Fantasy 15 that begins with a little note, this is for longtime yes. fans and for newcomers. It, it's, it's addressing its audience directly. So the first thing that happens is four onion kids fall down a hole. <laughs> I'm pretty that's sure that's exactly how this right. game begins, right? That That's exactly <laughs> right. Though something that has <laughs> happened with that, uh, again, to get right back into the different versions thing, in the, the one I watched on Steam, they weren't called onion kids, they were called right. freelancers. And this right. is one of the very few times where I think you and I will be kind of adamantly against that change. Maybe, yeah. maybe, you're, maybe you're more open to it than, than I am, but Onion Knight is... I'll use the word early again, here we go, an indelible image for Final oh, Fantasy. Goodness. And, I mean, Onion Knight is a playable character in Dissidia. Onion sure. Knight has a particular design, and in the Steam version, at least, they took both the name Onion Kid or Onion Knight away and made right. it freelancer and well, took the design, and I was like, why would you do that? So, in the DS version, it's only Lunith who falls down the hole. Right. Okay. So, freelancer is uh, the beginning job, I think, in Final Fantasy V, which right. also uses the same system of crystals giving you classes and whatnot. And we'll get more into that when we do the art music gameplay episode. I think it is a fantastic image. I think Freelancer is a little more generic. And I think that's why they went with it in the remake, because they were trying to standardize some of their classes. I think that is such a Final Fantasy thing that it is kind of a shame that they got rid of it for the remake. Yeah, so from a plot perspective, the first thing that happens is our hero or heroes falls down a hole. And that's that's an auspicious start to an adventure. Yeah. Yeah, you're just you're immediately in a dungeon, you're in a cave like you said in the newer versions it's Lunath by himself and he's just kind of running around trying to find his way out of this cave having to fight these little goblin monsters by himself and disembodied voices right. saying stuff. I'm not sure it's made immediately apparent what's happening but yeah, it's the crystal that's speaking to him because that's it it's at the end of that first little dungeon. You meet the wind crystal. And it says to him that he can't take on the, the power of the crystal until he gets, until he assembles his party. You find Ark, who is Luna's buddy already. You find Refia, who is the daughter of a... Of a blacksmith. Blacksmith. And Ark is being picked on, too. And that's when they make it apparent that they are orphans, that both Luneth and Ark are orphans. Classic. Yeah. Then they're going to see the king to get the uh, mithril ring, and that's where they find their fourth party member. Uh, Ingus. In Ingus. Good old Ingus. Not to be confused with Ignis. Ignis, who is awesome. Ingus is awesome, too, though. I like him. I like the way his character, you know, he's got a bit of that classic archetype where he's driven by honor, and he's really into the kingdom ideals and the slowly gets stripped away as it becomes clear he has a much bigger purpose than just serving the king and, and being very humble all the time. They run into the king, or they run into the king, they go to see the king, and the king's got something for them to do, and this also sounds very familiar. Apparently his daughter, Princess Sarah, has disappeared, and our heroes of the light need to go rescue her. Yep, just exactly the same, and, and they're particularly concerned because this town has been haunted, I suppose you could say, by a djinn. And there, there's actually a nearby town out just outside the castle where everybody is ghosts. It's got a super creepy vibe to it, and it's one of the things that I think starts to set this game apart. It's a little 
more mysterious. They're, the first thing you do is run into a town full of ghosts. You're being haunted by djinns, and you go to the cave to try to find Princess Sarah and rescue her during this time. And you get there, and in a different kind of twist, because we had a twist on this formula in Final Fantasy 1, which was just, yeah, you rescue the princess, but that's not the end of the game. That's just the end of the very opening act of the game. In this case, the twist on the formula is you get there, and she says, no, I came here to find the djinn and destroy it myself. Right, yeah. She's going on an adventure, and our warriors of the light, and all their hubris... Right. Think that they're there to help her when no, they're just messing it up, get out of the way. The princess is handling things. Which is fantastic. And she becomes your first guest character in the game and still one of the earliest ones in the franchise. There were a couple in Final Fantasy 2, but uh, the way it works in 3 is pretty fun and interesting too, where they kind of serve as like some summons would later in games, where they just show up at the beginning of battle, cast a particular spell, help you out in that right. way. And that's what she does as you get your way through and defeat the djinn. And then that's when when you go back to the cave and you, the first crystal is the wind crystal. And the wind crystal gives our warriors of the light their first set of jobs, their first set of superpowers. And this is... When people talk about which superpower would you want, I want the, the superpower to switch between Final Fantasy jobs. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good one. Oh, I'd never thought of that. I'm going to answer that next time. That's great. Uh, <laughs> And we'll dive really, really heavily into the stuff when we talk about the gameplay of this. We won't talk too much about the job system as we go through this. We know Well, we've already that, done our job system episode, right? That is... Right. So, you know, we, we've already talked about all the different jobs. We'll talk about how they work in this particular game and some of the intricacies of that, knowing that it is one of the more popular elements of this game. But for right now, we're, we're going to mostly leave that out of it, other than saying it's pretty cool. Yeah. This is also where in the DS version you open up access to the Mognet, which is not something that existed in right. <laughs> in the original <laughs> version. But it does exist in other games, right? The Moogles carry mail in... in yeah, that's in, a thing now. I think they started it in 9. Yeah, that's where I'm remembering it. But and they in, do it in 14, certainly I in assume 14. in 11. <laughs> uh, I don't recall. Oh, man. So our heroes go back to Castle Sassoon. Am I saying the, that correctly? I assume so. All right. Where Princess Sarah, I'm pretty sure I'm saying that one right, yeah, uses yeah. The, the mithril ring they got from the djinn to break the curse. So does that mean no more ghosts? Yeah, no more ghosts. And then they go back to Sid in Kazis, where the airship is. Now here's something that stymies me a bit. Maybe you can help me understand this. They've got to then, they're trying to go through a mountain pass, but there's a, yeah. there's a big a boulder blocking the way. So they ram it with the airship. Yeah. And you get your airship really early in this game, which is kind of a fun turnaround from things. But uh, then from, you immediately oh, you destroy it. it. Right. Here's my question. If they have an airship and the boulder was in the way, why didn't they go over the boulder? Apparently, and this is actually a big theme throughout the game, there are heavy restrictions on how high certain types of airships can fly. So this game is very hard on airships. You lose a number of them, and some of them aren't, can't go as high as you need them to go. That will continue to be a theme, in fact, is continuing to open up the world to bigger and broader 
areas. It's that constant adventure. And so it seems a little strange because I'm with you. Like, why wouldn't you just go over it? We're used to the idea of airships. That's when you do get to fly over the mountains. And I think that's probably ingrained in us from later games in the series. But yeah, I think the answer to the question, if you're being charitable, I guess, is that in this world, this is a rinky-dink little airship. It would be the equivalent, I guess, of trying to drive over the Rocky Mountains in a motorcycle during the winter. Like, you could do it, maybe, but... That sounds like um, a terrible idea. Right, and so these rinky-dink little airships aren't going to get it done. You need to keep upgrading until eventually you get the big one late in the game that can go over the big, gigantic mountain pass. And so... Yeah, it, it is kind of an odd theme to have, but I think what they're getting at is this idea of continuing to advance technology and advance your understanding of the world kind of along with it. So from there, our heroes have to travel on foot, and we eventually get to the town of Canaan, I think. Yeah. And this, is why, Sid's, uh, and this is why Sid is helping us, right? Because he needs to get back to town to find Mrs. Sid. Mrs. Which sort Sid. of implies, does that mean that Sid is his last name in this one? Or did she just change her name to his first name and add a missus to it when they got married? Yeah, either this world has very strange customs about name changing when you get married, or Sid is his (laughs) last name in this world. Who knows? It's never made clear. And just because it's not clear to us doesn't mean that the customs have to be very strange. But it certainly seems pretty strange. That's true. So, Uh, rare. I mean, Mrs. Sid is not something you see in a lot of the other games, either. That's not really a thing so it was odd to see it in this one it was yeah i don't think he's married in any other game i don't i don't believe so i'd have to run through the list but i don't there's believe the so. uh there's the assistant who's in love with him in seven right shara the king is married in nine. Oh right. well and in eight is he married to adia yeah headmaster yeah. sid was married to adia before yeah. the sorceress this is why happened. we'll need to do our sid episode here soon all right so i take it back i take it back but certainly sorceress adia would never <laughs> ever <laughs> put up with being called mrs sid do you think he would be okay with being mr adia i believe he would yeah okay. i would that's the robin williams sid too yeah yeah right yeah all right <laughs> professor yeah <laughs> professor Dead Robin Society, Sid so. Williams. Yeah. Oh, Captain, my Captain. This town of Canaan is also the home of a girl named Selena. Who's Selena? She's a sleeping girl. Well, she was. Well, Selena is looking for her long lost love, or her at least incredibly lost love. <laughs> he, he certainly is. He seems to get lost a lot. Yeah. He is perpetually lost. And so she tells you that she's worried about this man. And that if you happen to find him, to please send him to her, if at all possible, because she's very concerned about his well-being and that he might be in grave danger. And t- turns out he is. She, so this is a second female character who is almost completely identified by her relationship with a man. Yeah. All yeah. Right. It's not that Final Fantasy has not had before or will not have again strong female characters, but these two. Not well, I especially. Mean, but we also just ran into Sarah, Princess Sarah, who was running an adventure to take out the djinn. So I, right. maybe I shouldn't be too critical. And Refia is, is pretty good. Yeah, Refia running away from home to go on an adventure is, is an awful lot of agency. Yeah. All right. All right. And later in the game, we will meet Unai. All right. So, yes, yeah, she mourns uh, Selena. She's mourning for the disappearance of Desh. 
who might be in trouble, who is almost certainly in trouble. And we need Desh for some reason, right? He's got a thing? No, he's got yeah. a spell. He's got a spell we need. It's one of my favorite spells. Here I am going to claiming favorites again. This is a really cool spell. It's a really cool little spell. Yeah, you see what I did there? <laughs> he's got That's the right. mini spell. Well, I mean, we need the mini spell. Continuing our theme of exploration, it's because in order to get to the next part of our journey, we have to get to a town. We have to go. We have to get really small to go through a pass and get to this town where everybody is small. Right, which is possibly a, a reference to the Lilliputians of Gulliver's Travels. Yeah, I think so. We decide that we're going to go look for Desh. He's um, he's on the Dragon's Peak. Yeah. <laughs> and and in our attempt to find Desh on Dragon's Peak, Bahamut appears. Bomber. <laughs> yeah, and he and he captures the Warriors of the Light to feed to his children. So, uh, <laughs> so you're able to defeat or not defeat? You're able to run away from Bahamut. You are not able to defeat Bahamut. And there, in the nest of the dragon, you find the man you're looking for, Desh, the swashbuckler, and his little spell. He, though, has a problem common to Final Fantasy in that he has lost his memory. Oh, he's got amnesia, one of these things again. So he has no memory of Selena or that he's supposed to be returning home. What he does have is this overwhelming sense that he's supposed to be looking for something. He doesn't know what it is, but he knows he's supposed to be doing something very important. So not at all helpful is Dash. <laughs> well, he shows up and helps in fights and stuff, right? Yeah, he's helpful in battle, but uh, okay. he he's much more of a... And this is something we've talked about before. He is a complication to the plot. His amnesia is not a plot device that solves a plot hole by any means. His amnesia just opens up a, a ton of questions and sends you out on all kinds of extra adventures to dive into who is this man and what role does he play in the overarching plot here? All right. So with Desh on your side and his uh, ability to make you all small, you're able to go to the town of Tozis and meet the Lilliputians. I mean the gnomes. Yeah. You meet the gnomes. The gnomes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. And after meeting the gnomes, you're able to go through the Tozis tunnel, which gets you to the Vikings Cove. So apparently the the Nordic folk... Or exist in this world. And it turns out that they've got a problem in that their dragon, the Nepto dragon, I assume named after Neptune? Sure. Why not? So so they're Vikings, which is Norse, and their dragon is the Nepto or Neptune dragon, which is a Roman. Right. The Roman version of Poseidon, who's Greek. Okay, sure. Why not? Yeah. Put it all together. So you're able to uh, get to the Nepto Temple, and you find that the dragon statue is missing an eye. And this is where the shrinking be you know, comes into play. You shrink down to get through the tunnels inside the temple and find the eye, which has been stolen by a rat. You take the... Uh, it, it's a, you know, it's a, a statue's eye, so it's like a gem. And then return the eye to the statue, which calms down the dragon. And in gratitude, the Vikings give the Warriors of the Light... The Enterprise, to boldly yeah. go where no warriors of the light have gone before. <laughs> One of the clearest, most obvious 
homages they would have in the series. But hey, if you're going to go big, go good. Go with the Enterprise. Gosh darn right. But they don't break that one on a boulder. Nope. Need that one to get over another set of big, gigantic mountains. But you don't destroy it this time. So that's good. So yeah, so far, there's not a lot in the story about taking out any bad guy. There are no real bad guys. It's just sort of like finding the next problem and, and fixing the next thing. Right. So with the Enterprise, our heroes are able to find the village of the ancients. And this is where they learn that, hang on, are, are they on the floating continent? Yeah. All right. Okay. So, <laughs> so explain to me here what's going on, Drew. Yeah, this gets really strange, and this is something we've talked about before, but this is a massive paradigm shift where you come to realize that the continent you've been traveling around, and at one point I think one of the random NPCs in a town like challenges you to go around the entire border of the continent, and it seems like such a big task at the time. Then you come to find out it's just one of many floating continents in this strangely built universe that's just got all these different little floating continents around it and you need the you need a certain airship to go in between the continents and so it's very similar to for those of you that have played kingdom hearts the sure. way that kind of works with the, the the worlds being separate from each other but you you need a special kind of vehicle to get there but it's very very strange and pretty cool but we're not even halfway through the game here, right? Usually these paradigm shifts, you know, Cloud wasn't really who he thought he was the whole time. That happens once we've established for hours and hours and hours who he is, right? You know, we know the world of balance so very well by the time Kefka breaks the world. This is a paradigm shift, like, within the first, what, tenth of the game? It happened. It comes pretty quick. Yeah, it, it's very early on, and it's pretty cool that you're opened up to this whole mystical world of wonders. I think it's one of the things that the franchise is known for, these kind of awe-inspiring moments. And this is an early one where you just go, oh, wow, there's a whole lot out there to go explore. So we also run into the Golgans, who we heard about from the prophecy at the beginning. The Golgans are this game's version of the Circle of Sages from Final Fantasy One. They're the ones who have seen what's coming, not a 2,000-year time loop in this case, but some sort of threatening void. So it's always good to have the sages on your side. You gotta have a few. And there are almost always at least one, as we talked about, Bugenhagen. Right. You you gotta have that. That might be one of our interlude episodes later where we talk about the various prophecies and how they're used and what they mean. Yeah, we'll have to do that. So they send you to the Tower of Owen, as opposed to the Tower of Babel, I suppose. At the top of which is the Medusa... who is a servant of Zand, and she's threatening to destroy the tower and drop the continent in the world below, which has shades of Final Fantasy VII, I think. And after defeating her, Desh's memory returns, and he remembers that he's one of the Ketra, I mean ancients, right. who helps to build the tower. Uh-huh. And then, okay, does, does Desh die here? No. 
Okay. But it's assumed that he does. Because he jumps into a fire. Right. Okay. He sacrifices himself by jumping into the fire as the party is getting out uh, in order to stop the continent from coming crashing down and killing everybody. He appears to sacrifice himself, but he will show back up later. Okay. All right. Uh, but it's still a, a heart-wrenching scene, and in fact, uh, the characters swear at that moment that they owe Desh a great debt, and it really is the driving force behind the bigger plot point, which is not just about them figuring out, like, why are we supposed to be important and what's going right. on here, and right. them just going, solving each little problem and recognizing this, as you talked about, this ancient plot of the ancients. Aha, see what I did there? With Desh and his father... The reason for that, why did they build this tower? What were the ancients trying to protect the world from? And that's what we will unravel for the rest of the game, and that will be our major theme as well. Also, Luneth swearing a debt to Desh reminds me a lot of Zack and Cloud, but it's very common in Final Fantasy for party members and soldiers to swear to avenge their fallen comrades. And let's not skate over that we just got introduced to Zand. Can you tell me a little bit more about... Uh, yeah, it's explained okay. a little bit later on in the story. But yeah, we can at least say that this is the first appearance of Zand, who is the main antagonist throughout most of the game. And like with... He's, he's actually very similar to Kuja in a lot of ways from Final Fantasy IX. He doesn't show up until you're a little ways into it. And... Then he also strangely and randomly gets replaced at the very end of the game by a more pressing threat. So the way is cleared for the Dwarven Hollows, which is where we want to go because that's where the next crystal is. That's where the fire crystal is. The dwarves have their own problem because, again, you know, we get to the sort of shopping list part of some of these games. Their, their ice horns have been stolen. The, the party recovers the horns. you got to make use of the toad spell because you got to go into the subterranean lake to recover it. So again, yeah, you got to... This is something I really like in this game, going back and watching. Like, that was actually pretty clever because throughout the rest of the series, in fact, I was just playing 15 the other day and got turned into a toad in the middle of battle. So gotta this hate that. stuff... <laughs> right. The, those uh, toads in Final Fantasy exists. VII? Ooh, mm -hmm. ooh. Mm. Yep. That was infuriating. Uh, so the mini and toad spells endure, but I love the way they play a role in the storyline of this sure. game. Especially in the, in the exploration, as you've mentioned a couple times, it's sort of the exploration motif that runs through. You've got to shape change in order to, to move on. That's something that also shows up in Kingdom Hearts, though it's just automatic. Uh, that right. Sora will become a, a merfolk for Atlantis and will become a, a lion in Pride Rock and so on. There are also certain doors in this game that can only be opened if your lead character is a thief. Nice. After you defeat Gutsko the Rogue, you return to the Dwarven Hollows, followed by a mysterious shadow. When you get there to return your shopping list to the dwarves, Gutsko reveals himself to have not been defeated, and he grabs the horns, and he runs into the, the Molten Cave. He jumps okay. into the... Because that's where I would go if I had some ice horns. Yeah. <laughs> so Gutsko the Rogue uses his stolen property and the power of the fire crystal in the Molten Cave to turn into a dragon. So I gotta say, as much as I disapprove of stealing from dwarves and taking uh, crystal power that's not yours, if I could do both those things and turn into a dragon, I might do that. Well, you know, if the reward is big enough. <laughs>
<laughs> so uh, you, you got to fight the dragon, and then the fire crystal will give you more jobs, and then you can return the horns of ice to the dwarves, which I suppose, all in all, is a job well done. After getting the power of the crystal of fire, the four warriors of the light go to Tokol, which has been sacked by Hein, who is a former advisor to King Argus. He's captured the king and enslaved the people and uprooted the Elder Tree, all of which are bad, bad things. <laughs> they are taken to Castle Hein, which is actually the floating Elder Tree. After defeating Hein, they restore the Elder Tree and obtain the Fang of Wind, which is the thing that becomes important later. And then they get to Castle Argus, where the king, King Argus, thanks them by giving them the Wheel of Time. You follow yeah. all that? You, yeah, you, 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 yeah. You, you, you with me here? Ran through all that pretty quick, but that's mostly just the way of, uh, yeah, we're still advancing the plot. You mentioned you had to get the Fang of Wind. Uh, quick note on King Argus. There's something that's interesting about him is that Argus is the name of a character in Final Fantasy Tactics, although in the original translation it was Algus, right. and in the War of the Lions translation it is Argoth. The thing is, Argus, Algus, and Argoth would all be spelled exactly the same in Japanese. And when you say uh, spelled... I mean that with the way their language works, the R and the L are spelled using the same letter, and that's the same thing with the S and the TH. That's why you'll often see those particular things mixed okay. up in translations. So, sure. all the Right. R, L, okay. All right. So R's and L's and also S's and TH's. The difference between a U and an A is negligible here because it's just the uh sound. And okay. uh, that's something you'll see as well. We'll talk about this more, but the Japanese alphabet vowels are A, E, U, E, and O. So A is usually what you'll see there. Uh is very rare. It's almost certainly Argos in its original, Argoth. Okay. But the other thing is that these names aren't always meant to be Japanese. Sometimes that's just their sure, best sure. way of spelling a name from a different culture. So, like Dash's name, D-E-S-C-H. S-C-H is not a combination you're going to see naturally in Japanese. In fact, you would have to pronounce it Deshu. Right, because, because of the, the right. ending in vowels. Okay, all right, all right. Well, and it's worth remembering that in English, we pronounce the letter A at least five different ways. <laughs> right, right, right. And if you ever want to remember what those five different ways are, think about the uh, the continents that all begin with a letter A, with a letter right. A. Yeah. So, yeah, that 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 is uh, language is fun. Yeah. The other fun thing here, in addition to, again, we've talked a little bit about the Ancients and that being an early version of, you know, the Ketra from Final Fantasy VII or that word, that concept of an ancient civilization being important, which is a common thing you will see in a lot of fantasy stuff, including Game of Thrones. We've talked about Valyria and the, uh, you know, the First Men and stuff like that. But there's also a Wheel of Time here you just yeah. mentioned king argus gives you a wheel of time now if i'm not mistaken and i <laughs> that's uh -huh, a very uh -huh. popular series of books i have not read any of them have you sure. read all of them i have indeed read all of them and it's been a while since i finished the series 
So, I, and I would not call myself an expert in the book. Some of them I've read several times, especially the early ones, because when a new one would come out, I would want to reread the series. When the last one came out, I reread most of the series, and then I read those last three books again. I am familiar with the series. If you tried to quiz me on it right now, I could get some of it, but not all of it. And in the book series by Robert Jordan, the Wheel of Time is the metaphor they use for talking about how events are cyclical. So you'll have you know, the various ages, and we're in the third age, sometimes called the age of whatever, you know, the age, and then they talk about the age of legends, and, you know, when do we move from one age to another, and then things repeat, not necessarily exactly the same way, because that's another theme that they go into a lot in, in the Wheel of Time is, you know, this time we're going to do it better, this time we're going we're gonna to try to get things right, and sometimes they're successful and sometimes they're not. But the Wheel of Time is also a, a concept found in a lot of religions, most notably to my remembering from my college days from Buddhism. And again, it's about this idea of repeating ages. It's about, you know, so we'll have the age of people, and we might have the age of monsters, and the age of legends, and the age of high technology, and the age of magic, and that sort of thing. So it, it's just this idea that time is cyclical, that this has come before and it will come again. What is it in in context of Final Fantasy III? Because I'm pretty sure they use it to repair or build another airship. This is an idea that the Final Fantasy series would explore in a lot of different ways. Obviously, in upcoming games, you know, you've got these bygone eras that are shaping world events, whether it's the War of the Magi in Final Fantasy VI or the existence of Xanarkand a thousand years ago in Final Fantasy X, but I think probably, almost certainly the way in which this concept is is blown out the most, this kind of wheel of time and ages that sort of repeat each other, is of course now in Final Fantasy XIV, with all of the astral ages, with all of the evidence of the multiverse and, you know, things happening and unfolding and that maybe all the Final Fantasy games are echoes of each other. And of course, there's a ton of Final Fantasy III music and iconography and, and imagery in the original A Realm Reborn Final Fantasy fourteen. So yeah, having this wheel of time here so early, I, I think shows you how interested they are in telling and retelling these stories and having them be echoes of each other and ultimately existing in the same grand multiverse, even with things like Chrono Trigger and Chrono Cross and Kingdom Hearts and and all of that, but still here in Final Fantasy III, before any of those things existed, they show an interest in that great, big, wide world. Uh, for now, though, the Wheel of Time in Final Fantasy III, and it gives them access and it gets back to our idea of the floating continents in this weird creation. We also come to understand that, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit here to, for when they explain this, but that time had been stopped and on most of the continents and that there was a world that existed before that has been destroyed that has been replaced by a much darker world the one that you're in which again reminds me of final fantasy 14 and game of thrones like you're talking about wheel of time it's it's a a common theme in there where there is this pre-existing world that we have really no access to and and so yeah it plays a role in all of that, but particularly in trying to restore the natural flow of time and of the world, because part of Zan's master plan is to not allow time to flow naturally forward, because he's trying to preserve himself forever. 
And if we ever get into the idea that some of these games are connected either on the same planet, I mean, and we've talked about this some before, but if we ever do a full-on episode, I think this is one of those that helps connect a lot of things. Because yeah. if part of the reason that we're having issues with various temporal anomalies is because of, for example, a 2,000-year time loop, and then people right. realized, oh, we can manipulate time, and maybe this has happened before. So maybe Final Fantasy One is the first age, and Final Fantasy Two is the second age, and Final Fantasy Three is the third age. And then maybe where does it begin repeating, or where right. where is this? Uh, you know, maybe Final Fantasy Fifteen is a version of you know the seventh age, but so is Final Fantasy Ten. You know, it's just different right. versions of the same age. And I think using the wheel of time as a metaphor in Final Fantasy. Three as a way to further explore, a way to further understand the world, ties into a lot of themes we have and, to keep the time and wheel of time metaphor running, themes we will see. I think it, this is the one, or this concept is the one that really helps connect. If you really want to try to make them all part of the same world or part of the same multiverse... This is the one that really is the linchpin in that. Uh, this in and that 14, theory. I think, with, with sure. 14 openly admitting there have been X number of astral ages and that right. they have characters talking about how many times even the face of the world has been reshaped. So, sure. yeah. Or even the number of times this particular boss fight has happened because right. they talk about the echo and they talk about, you know, they don't talk about other player characters or, you know, other players, but they do talk about other adventurers who are maybe doing the same thing in a different version. Yeah. Right. Multiverse. So may, multiverse. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. and then you get into parallel worlds versus alternate worlds, and that's, again, another episode. Yeah, we'll do so that. So where, where were we? Sid uses the Wheel of Time to make a new airship. No, to remodel. Yeah, I think he upgrades the Enterprise. With the Wheel of Time. Yeah. I, I assume it goes on the uh, driver's side. Yeah. <laughs> okay, excellent. And aboard the upgraded airship, this is when we finally get a little bit of backstory, a little bit of explanation from Sid as to just what in the heck is going on here. And he explains that these four warriors of the light are not just random strangers. It's not just a coincidence that they all happen to be orphans. In fact, they were all orphaned in the same incident. Sid describes being on an airship, a grand airship, again, one of our themes that could soar higher in the sky than any of the other airships, and that there was some sort of attack and just about everybody on board was killed, with the exception of him and four young baby turtles. I'm sorry, uh, <laughs> Onion Knights. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so he, he taught them all how to do ninjutsu and right. gave them names based on the art masters of the Renaissance. <laughs> Lunas, <laughs> Refia, Ark, and Ignis. Ingus. Not Ingus, Ingus. Uh, but yeah, they, they come to find out that they have this shared backstory again. Something we'll see that their destinies are intertwined, common theme in Final Fantasy. But they're probably even chosen then uh, at that moment in time by the crystals to be the four warriors of the light. So with Sid and the uh, upgraded Enterprise, they make their way to the surface world. The surface world is a swirling mass of darkness and maelstroms and, and scariness, which is why I assume everyone lives on floating continents. Right. Here's where we find Elia, Maiden of Water, or the Water Priestess, Arya Bennett. Yeah, 
Another one of those weird translations. Again, you would spell Elia and Aria almost exactly the same way. Okay. Yeah, it, the the vowel at the beginning would be different, but other than that, and I think it is now canon that it's supposed to be Aria, which is weird to me because the piece of music is so ingrained in my brain as being Elia or Elia, maiden of water, and she's actually Aria, priestess of water. So whatever, man. Well, and it's appropriate though that a woman who is so associated with a particular piece of music would be named Aria. Yeah, that's pretty good. And again, another prominent Game of Thrones character that I don't think Sir Davos Seaworth the Onion Knight is the Onion Knight because of Final Fantasy III, and I don't believe that Arya Stark is Arya Stark because of Arya the Princess of Water, especially because she was Elia <laughs> to begin right, with. Right. But you just you never know. Well, I think that also speaks to some of these, you know, naming conventions when you're trying to name your fictional characters, do you name them after real-world people? Do you name them after real-world concepts? Do you just try to make a collection of sounds that sounds interesting? In this case, I think that uh, you know Arya is not an uncommon feminine name in Western cultures. Yeah, so I would be surprised if those two characters are connected. Right. It's worth noting that Arya, like many of the other characters, like the gnome you had to heal earlier and Mrs. Sid, who was ill, she needs some healing, like the elf prince in Final Fantasy 1, right? So right. I think just giving her a regular old potion does the trick, though. Yeah. And then she joins you to help restore the water crystal, so more superpowers incoming. Yeah. And also we got to, you know, we got to get on the path of putting this world that is in darkness and in ruin back, back in order here. And right. so she's going to help us with that. You make your way to the Cave of Tides there. I think she's got a crystal shard she uses to help you get into the Cave of Tides. Yeah. Uh, and she leads you to the crystal. And then, in proper martyr fashion, she rescues... It's Lunas, specifically. She rescues and is shot by an arrow. And as she falls, the Kraken attacks. Thanks a yeah. lot, Liam Neeson. But yeah, tough. So you gotta you gotta fight off the Kraken, and you do so. But it is not in time to save. And then there's another earthquake. It strikes me that while the world of Final Fantasy One was falling into ruin fairly quickly, the world of Final Fantasy Three had already fallen into ruin. Yeah, like and this still is right. Like it was a lot further along that particular path. Final Fantasy II had it rough, too, because the Emperor of Palamecia had opened the gates of hell. It was a recent thing. It had just happened. The world was just entering a dark phase, whereas this world has been in its dark phase for a while. Yeah. Much like Dante being led by Virgil, the party apparently swoons into unconsciousness and awake in the next circle of hell. I mean, uh, in a town called Amur, where they find that Goldar... The lackey of Princess Rita Repulsa has kidnapped their airship. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Hang on, Rita's in this game? Can we become Power no Rangers? Rita. No Rita. Alright, just Goldar. Yeah. Then you run into a bunch of kooks who think they're the warriors of the light. 
What is going These on? These guys are awesome. This is, I think, <laughs> honestly, Final Fantasy's first, because I even remember seeing this on the 2D version, like you mentioned, on the ROMs. But th this is funny. This is legitimately funny. Four old guys show up absolutely convinced that they are the Warriors of Light, and you are imposters. Like, uh. up until the very first monster shows up and they run off scared. But it's funny. I think it works as a, there's a, of course, Uematsu has a piece of music that goes with it that really helps get it over, as they say in professional wrestling. Sure, sure. Uh, but I, I, I think it works. It's funny. And, and they become kind of little indelible. Again, we've talked about side characters, but the people you're fighting for, the, you know, people of the realm, the people of the world who would very much love to be the warriors of the light, who would very much give themselves, would give their lives just as you maybe would in order to save the world, but they're just four old guys and they can't. So you you got to do it for them. You're saving the world for them. So after rescuing the four old guys, they help you get some shoes from a woman named Delilah, and then you get to Goldar Manor. So Goldar Manor is where the Earth Crystal is. You defeat Goldar, but then Goldar shatters the Earth Crystal. Yeah. No, my superpowers, dude. How am I supposed to get the rest of my jobs? Right, and also, you know, restore order to the Re universe. And restore order. Restore the yin and yang of light and dark. Right. Chaos and order. Right. Because there just seems to be a lot of chaos. Also more superpowers. Superpowers. You free your airship, and, and this is, I think, where the world kind of opens up. You're able to go to lots of different little towns. The kingdom of Seronia has a civil war thanks to a guy named King Gorn. You find King Gorn's son, Prince Alice, hanging out at a bar. Yeah. Right. He's pretty okay. upset because he is not happy with the things that his father has been doing. He's turning into a tyrant. He's not sure what he can do. And he asks for your help in convincing, trying to convince his father to not be such a jerk. How does that work out? Because if I recall correctly, there's some uh, filicide attempted. Yeah, does does not go well. <laughs> okay. It's a pretty dramatic scene. Yeah, you get there, and the king, recognizing that you're with his son, goes ahead and invites you in and, you know, lets you stay there for the night. You know, that's never gone over poorly, right? Red wedding. And so just inviting <laughs> me in for a little bit of dinner, a <laughs> little, little evening, and in the middle of the night, while Prince Alice is asleep, the king sneaks into the room and starts to try to murder his son. He pulls out a knife, he's getting close, and then, shockingly, instead of stabbing his son in his sleep, he stabs himself, waking his son up, and, as you find out, breaking himself of a mind control spell. It turns out that the reason he's been doing these terrible things for all of this time is because he's been mind controlled by someone named Gigameth, which again not, is not Gilgamesh, right? Really close to Gilgamesh okay, and would probably okay. be spelled similarly, but he has been mind controlled and in his final breaths can explain to his son that he was always the father that he remembered him as as a kid, that it was never his intention to do these evil things, that now that he's free from the spell, Alice must serve on as king, must be a good king, and, uh, you know, gives him the, that whole speech. It's very heartbreaking, and, it, and it's beautiful, and it's nice that he gets to know that it wasn't just that his dad turned into a jerk, that there was a, a reason behind all of these 
terrible things. It's also, I think, Final Fantasy's first attempt at something they would absolutely nail in Final Fantasy IV, which sure. is the, I think, probably the easiest and best argument, if you do it really well, against why monarchies are bad, is this. If someone could mind control a king, and it's not in real life, but just as a philosophical argument, if you're saying sure. you give yeah. one person all the power, then the only thing that needs to happen for all of that power to be misused is for that one person to have their mind controlled or poisoned or to be swayed right. into doing something terrible. And it happens a lot in Final Fantasy IV. <laughs> right. But we'll get there. Right. Does something happen to the Enterprise? Because as as I understand the next we get the next airship next. The Nautilus. Yeah. I, I couldn't remember, yeah, this is one of those things, sorry, but this is part of not being encyclopedic. Exactly what right. happened to the Enterprise, I just remember that you need the Nautilus to get to the next place, and that it goes much faster, and it's super Excellent. cool. Excellent. So you get the Nautilus, and you make your way to Doga's Manor. Doga is a dude. This, I remember. Uh-huh, <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Doga. Doga's got some bodyguards. Those bodyguards are not giant beavers, as you might be led to believe based upon Final Fantasy 2, but are, in fact, Moogles! Yeah, and, and other than retroactively putting Mognet into the game, this is the first actual appearance of Moogles in the series, in the original. Right, right. I think we've mentioned this already. I'm pretty sure that Guy from Final Fantasy 2 would have been able to speak with Moogles up there in the snow cave rather than giant beavers. Right. But that's fine. Yeah, close enough. So so what can you tell me about Doga? Doga, this is our next bit of long exposition. You get there, and Doga explains to you what I was talking about earlier with Zand and his reason behind sending the world into the chaos that it is. And he explains that he, Zand, and Doga are uh, both members of this ancient group of wizards or sages or magical beings. Is... Um, Uni? Unai? Part of that group? Unai is also a part of that okay. group. Okay. All right, and so they were all students of this great wizard called Noah. And so he gave each of them a gift. Doga got magical power. Awesome. Cool. Unai gained control over the world of dreams, and she'll show up later. Also a cool present. Yeah. What did Zand get? Zand got the gift of mortality. Oh, I don't know if that's was, as awesome. He was not happy about it. I mean, you can understand why you would not be happy about this. That seems a bit... I mean, I think as a thematic element, we see characters who don't want to die, and that's why they become bad guys over and over again. Uh, Voldemort is a fantastic example. It's worth noting that in the the world of Harry Potter, wizards live regularly to like 150. Right. But Voldemort died when he was 70-something. So if he had not tried so hard to not die, he would have lived about twice as long as he did. Right. And there's a very <laughs> similar kind of tragic story to Zand here, that he's so afraid of death that he stops time and sends everything right. into absolute chaos and Doga says something that I wrote down because I thought it was a pretty quality quote and it's something similar that Brad Pitt's Achilles yeah. says yep. in Troy and I think it is a central theme perhaps the central theme 
If there was a thesis statement, I think Doga gives it in this conversation. He says, but mortality is what makes life so precious in the first place. It is not how long you live, but what you make of the time you have in this world. And I think and, that's uh, yeah. that, I think that's fantastic. I think it's a great theme. At the same time, uh, if I was Zand, I'd be pissed too. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, come we're on. All, we're mortals, you know. We're or we're immortal mages. There's a lot you can do with that too. I think the idea that our mortality is what makes our life worth living is is fantastic in a real world sense. I think that's why we do what we do and why and how we give our lives meaning. But if you've got a fantasy world, unless you're trying to teach a guy a lesson, like you, you know, you send your immortal son Thor to the human world without his magical hammer because he's being a reckless douchebag up there in Asgard and amongst the frost giants and whatnot. I get that. But to say I'm going to make you mortal and you should thank me for it after having however long as an immortal mage seems like I think the lesson is lost. I think that's not the way to go about. Yeah. Unless Zan screwed up somehow and you were trying to teach him a lesson, like that's that's not a gift. I understand. If anything, Zand's I think they would. The argument would be that Zand messed up and how he responded to it, similar to in Final Fantasy VI with Vargas, who's upset with Sabin because he believes that their master has chosen him over uh, has chosen Sabin over him. And so he preemptively goes right. off the rails about it. And it may have been that he actually, and this isn't said explicitly, but I could imagine the master saying that he had cho- chosen Sabin just to sure. see how Vargas would respond to it. And that was his final test upon right. which he, he failed miserably. So maybe Zand right. in a similar way was given this test and, and failed it miserably. And sure. maybe somebody who would respond to being given mortality the way he does by taking it out on all of existence, maybe that's not someone who should have all of the powers that Unai and Doga have. Fair enough. Okay, so Zand, perhaps justifiably furious, but at the same time a good lesson or, or, or a good way to determine whether or not he deserves to have his immortality and power. So he drained power from the crystals, not unlike some other fiends we are familiar with. He split the world, not unlike a certain Kefka we're familiar with. Uh, And now he wants to kill the Warriors of Light and drain their power and continue his desperate attempt to hang on to immortality. Our heroes explain to Doga that Goldar has destroyed the Earth Crystal, but Doga, I guess, was ready for this because... That wasn't the real Earth Crystal. Yeah, it was fake. <laughs> uh, Thanks. So, Convenient. Well done. Yeah, well done to Doga. I wonder if he had some help from a Mistress of Dreams. So they make their way to a cave of the Circle. A cave of the Circle? Probably the cave of the Circle. Yeah. And <laughs> this cracks me up. Doga uses a spell to turn an airship into a submarine. Yep. I mean, why not? Yeah, sure. So people are like, man, Final Fantasy VII ruined the series because they brought, like, modern vehicles into it. Like, dude, there was a submarine in Final Fantasy III. There was a submarine in Final Fantasy I. Right. You had to use magical effervescent water to make it Like you do. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty great stuff. And so, yeah, Doga joins the party, another guest character. This game is really big on the guest characters. 
And he's kind of that Fusoya-type sage kind of character mm-hmm. who's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very powerful, great mustaches, jumps in when <laughs> right. he's needed. So you make your way to the Temple of Time, recover Noah's loot. Noah being the great sage, magus, wizard dude who gave Zand his mortality. The loot will awaken Unai from her eternal slumber, which being the, you know, the mistress of dreams, of course she's got to be sleeping. And then he goes in search of something called the Eureka Key. So Doga goes off on his own. We take our warriors of the light to Unai's shrine to wake her up. She gives y'all the fang of fire. And she she gives us another hint that Zand is not the one in control here because she says that that earthquake that dropped our onion kids down the hole was not created by Zan, but was created, in fact, by a... There must be another larger force mm-hmm. doing things in this world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we again, we again get uh, our ancient sage character to join the party, because Unai joins. And she helps you find... What is this? The seventh airship? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Invincible! The Invincible! This is the first airship that you can walk on, or like it's a... Uh... A town or a, oh, a sure. dungeon or whatever. It's right, the right. first one that you, you get to have people quartered, and there's a shop on board and, and all that kind of good stuff. So then she has to go on to do her thing while our Warriors of the Light are still trying to get the Crystal of Earth. Uh, there's uh, a monster to defeat whose name I cannot pronounce. The Heroes of the Light make their way through the Cave of Shadows. They fight another boss. They get the Fang of Earth, and now that they've got all four fangs... They can get through to the Ancient's Labyrinth, where they fight Titan, and finally meet the Crystal of Earth. The Crystal of Earth gives them their final set of superpowers, including the Sage class and the Ninja class, which are the only two classes you really need at the end of this game. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of too bad, but also kind of true. But they're also kind of awesome. So they, Yeah, they are, they are awesome. It is a bit of a shame that some of the other classes don't get to continue to be relevant. At the same time... They're two pretty good classes. You go back to Doga's Manor, where Doga and Unai send the Warriors of the Light to Doga's Grotto. They explain that their souls are needed to activate the keys of Eureka to enter the Crystal Tower. You want to give me some sort of explanation on that there, Mr. Creaseman? Well, at this point, it's, it's pretty well just understood that the goal here is getting to and stopping Zand. And so all of this is about making your way to the Crystal Tower, which is where Zand has locked himself up, trying to, and he's filled it with the most powerful monsters and creatures throughout the land. The reason you've been going on all of these quests and getting these jobs and making yourself powerful and getting the crystals and all of this has been so you can get to the crystal tower that will only unlock if you have all the the powers and make your way through a pretty impressive dungeon. Some people I know hate it. Uh, Again, we'll talk (laughs) about that when we get to the gameplay stuff. I'll just kind of skim over that, but... This will be one of the most interesting yada, yada, yadas in the podcast, but yada, 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 you get to the end of the Crystal Tower, and there is Zan. So confronting Zan, he, with his eternal life, attacks the four warriors of the light. And the four right. warriors of the light kick his tuchus. Yeah, right. Well, they have 
as we've discussed, accrued enough power, done all of the things required to defeat what would essentially be a demigod at this point. And so after, yeah, he gives you a little speech, you end up, and depending on how you've played the game, you can rather easily defeat him if if you do it right. Right. Uh, Because it turns out, as has been hinted a couple times... He is not the final boss, and so uh, he gives you a quick line about how his death isn't the end, and that the cloud of darkness that he has brought forth lives on, and then you are literally attacked by the cloud of darkness, which first gives you a little quote, which again I've written down here, it comes out and says, before taking any kind of form, we are the cloud of darkness, we have come to return the world to the void, to nothingness. We shall engulf everything in our shadow, and both light and darkness will return to the void. Your light is strong. We shall start with you. So as much as people want to kind of poo-poo on this final act of the game because it kind of gives you a final boss out of nowhere, and in fact, it gives you this final boss twice, thematically, this is really interesting and, and deeply important because it's... Up to this point, everything has been about how you, the warriors of the light, have to return light to this world of darkness, and you have to bring all the light back, and you have to, it's light versus darkness. And here they say, both light and darkness will return to the void. They need your light, this cloud of darkness does. And it's more about light and dark versus the void for the final act of this game. And that's a important thematic change that, again, we've talked about yin and yang, not necessarily good and evil, that darkness will play a role in helping what we, I guess, would call good in the final act here. Right. Uh, it, it's much more about, the, like you said, the, the final boss comes out of nowhere, but he, it literally comes out of nothingness, right? It is nothingness as opposed to that, that struggle between light and darkness or that balance between light and darkness. Right. And, and so even though it does take like the physical form of a pretty cool looking green alien woman right, uh, yeah. for the final boss fight, you're right. It, you're really fighting a literal void. Right. But it's still, it's still an entity of a kind. So it, it's like it, it wants to reduce to nothingness in, in kind of a similar... Nihil- but it's not nihilistic. It's not like Kefka. It, right. It's just... The nature, it, it's nothingness embodied. It's, its uh, I don't know, the kami of nothingness. It's the, but it's a really aggressive nothingness too. It's not about, well, you know, the world will, you know, the universe will eventually stop. It's, I'm going to force the universe to stop. So it is, I don't, I don't know, in the same way that I wouldn't say a tornado is evil, I wouldn't say nothingness is evil. But this but is the cloud of, of darkness is evil. I think we yeah, we can it, agree, right? It's aggressively destructive, to be sure. Right. And um, she almost immediately kills the warriors of light. Right. Right. Yeah. So uh, well done. Game uh, over. Uh, let's move on to Final Fantasy IV. Right. No, no. As as of course is one of the strange things that happens at the ends of these games. Your party of four people who started out as orphans managed to overthrow a god or an entity of pure evil and or nothingness and you defeat that in battle with your superior weaponry and magical skills 
mm-hmm. and and all of your crystals. Again, that's why the crystals are so important to the series is that that's kind of the conceit that makes that theoretically possible. But you do so, again, thinking that, okay, we have done what we needed to do. We defeated Zan. Now we've defeated the Cloud of Darkness. And it appears as though all of the Warriors of Light also are destroyed in the aftermath of the battle with the cloud of darkness, which would make sense. You just kind of, you know, everyone ends up dead. But as they're lying there on the ground, Doga and Unai appear. They say that they are going to share their souls with you. And it's pretty clear to me, at least, that they sacrificed themselves in order to bring the four warriors of the light back and to send them into the world of darkness. So the sages who were not gifted with mortality have learned its lesson far better than the one who was. Exactly. And they choose to give up immortality in order to set the world right, to bring back the only people who can, the warriors of the light, to send them into this final chapter of their journey. They say to them, Zan's actions have weakened the presence of the light in this world, bolstering darkness. Our souls will join the great soul beyond. You are our only hope, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You must bring balance between light and darkness. And again, a thesis statement here. This is no longer about returning the light. It's about balance between light and darkness. So our boys and girl are in the world of darkness. There's another set of bosses who, when they are defeated, free the ancient warriors, not of light, but of darkness. Yeah, so now cool we've got, inversion. Cool inversion. Yeah. So we got that yin-yang thing going on again. And then with their powers combined, they face Captain Planet. No, they with the powers of the Warriors of the Light and the powers of the Ancient Warriors of Darkness, they're able to again face the Cloud of Darkness, which represents the nothingness of the Void. And the Warriors of Dark sacrifice themselves. Again, we've got another sac- you know, understanding the gift of mortality. Uh, so they sacrifice themselves to make the cloud of darkness not mortal, I guess, but but weakened. Right. And then that's how you're able to win. With the powers of dark and light combined, we achieve balance. Then there's a right. bit of an epilogue. Yeah, uh, the, the, there's a little bit of an epilogue. It's first you get, again, this game is big on talking crystals and prophecies and text that, that sums things up for you. So it gives you... Uh, a little bit of, yes, you've returned balance to the force, Luke. Well done. Well done. And uh, then it says something I find really, really interesting. Uh, but life gave birth to something unique. A shining force that divided light and darkness and illuminated the world. A force called hope. A time will come again when four heroes need to restore That, again, just ties it to the whole rest of the series, really serves that one planet or at least a multiverse concept. It says a force called hope. That's clear Star Wars reference. Uh, (laughs) But it uh, it also says a shining force. Shining force. Ooh, yeah. uh, Video games. Interesting ones. But this idea that something has divided light and darkness. And uh, again, I think the central theme of mortality's importance and that you shouldn't see death and or darkness as the enemy, as the bad thing. The bad thing is the void, is the 
the lack of anything at all. Right. It's the complete right. emptiness that would exist if there were only voids. So the fact right. that there is death and the fact that there is darkness, this is a key theme in Kingdom Hearts as well, the fact that darkness exists is actually a good thing and you, the light needs the dark. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FFWeeklyPod or email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. You can also find us on Patreon.com slash FFWeekly for more episodes and content. And be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Join us next time when we follow the eternal wind, switch jobs, and figure out just what a Moogle is.